This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners. How's everyone doing? This is What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crimes. I hope you all are so well. So glad to be back with you, ringing in the new year with more lesser-known true crime stories. Wow, you guys, we made it like two weeks in. And uh, retrospectively, it's been savage as fuck. That's all I got on that one. Yeah. So, whew, if you haven't already, join the What Had Happened Facebook group. Follow the podcast uh, on IG, Twitter. Subscribe on YouTube. There's the What Had Happened website and email where you are encouraged to say, Hey, girl, hey. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. Share a true crime story you'd like to hear on the podcast. You know, whatever your heart's desire, just keep it clean, please. I know I sound drained, right? I totally am. Like, my allergies are kicking my ass this weekend. So, I'm gonna stick to the script, and I'm gonna get through this, because I promised you guys an episode this week. Don't think I forgot. It's Sunday, so technically, I'm still within the window. Anyways, all of those usual links can be found below, along with my references, per the usual, in the description box. Now... I'd like to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout-out time. First, thank you all for helping me end 2021 with 5,000 streams. I know it seems small, but it's so big for me. Um, You all helped me reach my personal goal that I mentally set for the podcast. Without you, there is no podcast. So, thank you. Hey, Lake Charles, Monroe, Denham Springs, Shreveport, New Orleans, Louisiana, Starkville, Gulfport, Tulupelo, uh, and my MOS school, Town Meridian, and Bay Springs, Mississippi, with Poplin, Louisville, Winchester, Lexington, Columbia, and Paducah, Kentucky. Psst, Jack Harlow, I stand. Norwich, New Haven, Manchester, East Hartford, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Thank you for listening. Albuquerque, Rio Rancho, Los Alamos, New Mexico. Hi. Ontario, British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan. Thank you for coming. Continuing to lend me your ears. Zurich and Vaud, Switzerland. Hello. Kuala Lumpur and 
Selangor, hello and welcome. Tel Aviv, greetings. And Ile de France and, let's see here, Pays de la, de la Lore, France, bonjour. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your likes, shares, and subscribes. So, for the last episode of 2021, I told you about Harry Potter, or Powers, the lonely hearts killer who preyed on widows and spinsters through personal ads in the 1920s and 30s, grifting some and murdering others, most notably his last victims, the Iker family, Asta and her three children, Harry, Greta, and Annabelle, and Dorothy Lemke in the torture dungeon he constructed beneath his and his wife's barn in West Virginia. For this episode of the new year, I'll be discussing what had happened in Quantico, Virginia to Captain Shirley Gibbs Russell in 1989. Shirley Gibbs was born September 22nd, 1959 in beautiful Beaufort, South Carolina. Beaufort is the home of Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island, and Marine Corps Air Station Beaufort. Proudly worked on both of those installations. Growing up in a town with two Marine bases, at some point, Shirley knew that in order to obtain the education she wanted, she'd eventually become an officer in the Marine Corps. I mean, and then it's legit, you know, a solid trajectory for a lot of people um, and a good plan. So after graduating from Battery Creek High School, she went on to attend college. On June 9th, 1980, lanky 5 foot 11, 130 pound Shirley checked into Officers Candidate School in Quantico, Virginia. As an African American woman, she was a part of a very small pool in training to become an officer. For those who don't know what Officers Candidate School or OCS is, it's described as the mission of Officers Candidate School is to educate and train officer candidates in Marine Corps knowledge and skills within a controlled and challenging environment in order to evaluate and screen individuals for the leadership, morale, mentality, and physical qualities required for commissioning as a Marine Corps officer. So this is 1980, and Shirley isn't delusional. Here's some quick facts. I know, like, back of my hand, because as I have stated in an episode or three or five, whatever, it's my podcast, I do what I want. I was a Marine as well, so. <sighs> the Marine Corps is literally the smallest of military branches, and women only comprise 10% of that small population. So if you can imagine, if you will, when I went in, we had X number, we were told, you know, hey, you're only 10%. So when you see a female Marine, she's always going by the fewer, the prouder, you know, the female Marine, whatever. Um, but in 1985, 1985 was the first year any female officer in the Marine Corps was promoted to the rank of general. So when the numbers are so disproportionately like off kilter, you know, the male to female ratio is so off. There's a lot of Marine machismo. I'm going to say it. And I said what I said, a dismissive misogynistic attitude. Um, not by all, but it is prevalent. 
So Shirley knew what she was getting herself into as far as training was concerned. She wasn't going to be cut through throat because there was no need. Shirley, you know, did what she needed to do. And after 10 weeks of training, she was sent back to the school that she was attending to complete her senior year of university with orders to return to Quantico September 1981. When Shirley returned to Quantico uh, in September, her orders were to attend the basic school or TBS for six months of training. TBS is described as, quote, to train and educate newly commissioned or appointed officers in the high standards of professional knowledge, esprit de corps, and leadership to prepare them for duty as company grade officers in the operating forces with particular emphasis on the duties responsibilities and warfighting skills required of every rifle platoon commander. So there's a loophole, the combat exclusion policy, because women weren't allowed to be on the front lines and fight combat. So yes, Shirley was able to dig foxholes and patrol during her training, but getting into the actual firefight, so to speak, wasn't allowed because at some point during the training actually it's two months prior to graduation they participate in what is known as a three-day war as an active duty enlisted marine when i graduated from boot camp i went on to mct which is marine corps training and i attended that you know in one of the small camps within camp lejeune we were supposed to have oh i think it was like a 24-hour war i don't remember how many days i think it's like maybe one or two days we got through maybe 10 to 12 hours of it because it's inclement weather. You can be wet and you can be cold, but you cannot be wet and cold. Hypothermia. You don't need your people in training dropping like flies because of things like that. So, and I also did mine like at the end of January, beginning of February. So I understand what the conditions were, even though I was in North Carolina and she was in Virginia, conditions were quite similar. So I also was there doing patrols and, you know, having to help set up the foxholes and things of that nature. So I know what she was allowed to do and what she wasn't allowed to do. I came in on the heels of 9-11 though. So our training was a little bit more intense. Back to Shirley though. During her three-day war in February, she caught hypothermia, along with 50% of her platoon, when she maintained her position in the foxhole as the cold rain poured down on her for hours, while her buddy was on patrol. And her buddy was on patrol way longer than, you know, the two of them anticipated, and they also didn't think the rain was going to, like, accumulate as deeply as it did. There was a whole, you know, situation where it took the buddy, you know, quite a bit of substantial strength to get Shirley out of the foxhole and, you know, get her into her sleeping system so that she could get her warmed up. I mean, it was like a whole ordeal, but you know what? She persevered. So two months later at graduation, Shirley reported to North Carolina with an MOS in administration, just as she had wanted. Uh, following her time in North Carolina, she was stationed at Paris Island, which I am certain was great for her being back home. I myself love Beaufort, I miss the Water Festival, miss Steamers on Ladies Island, the Yemassee and Port Royal Shrimp Festivals, the Lighthouse on Hunting 
Island, Old Sheldon Church. Shout out to my family and friends out there. I love you like I love shrimp and grits and Fogmore stew. Anywho, in 1985, while stationed at Paris Island, her paths crossed with Captain Robert P. Russell. Now, Robert was born on April 13th, 1957, and I'm going to biff this, but I don't want to. I believe it's like Mahone Mahonoy City, Pennsylvania. I'm sorry if I messed that up, you guys. Like, I don't know if it's like Mahoney or Mahonoy, but okay. Robert grew up in an area of Pennsylvania that had like many abandoned mines, things of that nature. And he was a very outdoorsy kid. So he liked to rip and run. And he discovered a multitude of places that were long forgotten. Keep this all in mind. By the time Robert was stationed at Paris Island, he was married to his first wife, Pamela, and the father to their two children. Unlike Shirley, who was a stellar Marine working hard to advance in her military career, Robert was in and out of trouble for things like adultery and various infractions that were considered conduct unbecoming of an officer. The two maintained, um, okay, so it's kind of vague. They maintained, like, obviously they maintained a good working relationship, but I, it's kind of, it's kind of gray. I don't know if the two of them started seeing each other before or after Robert and Pamela split, but while Rob, uh, you know, while the two were kind of seeing each other, I believe Robert and Pamela's marriage disintegrated three months after the finalization of the couple's divorce in 1987, Robert received orders to Gulfport Naval Base while in Gulfport. Robert and Shirley began seeing one another, you know, more steadily. But he was a slut. So he was seeing a lot of other women. He was playing a field and dating other women. But two months into Robert's transfer to Gulfport, Mississippi, Robert and Shirley wed. Sidebar. And this is also very important. When I was an active duty Marine, and I spoke to I've spoken to a lot of my friends who were, you know, women in the Marine Corps or in the military in general. There's normally like a rule of thumb that we've observed. So we found that we ourselves as women typically were prone to marrying fellow service members. For me personally, it was easier for me to be married to someone who understood my day-to-day -day life at work, someone who could understand what I was going through in the high-stress environment that we found ourselves in occupationally. So we also found that the males typically, yeah, there were, there were enough that would marry us, but a lot of them, you know, they had no problems with like, you know, marrying the high school sweetheart or, you know, a civilian. But for us, it, you know, I think we go through so much shit as service members, male and female alike across the board. Um, it would be very difficult to explain the ins and outs of 
whatever you were going through on a day-to-day basis, especially if, you know, your MOS was, you know, super high stress or, you know, the environment within the shop or, you know, where you worked was, you know, tension filled or whatever it was, you know, you've got someone that you can relate to. And so that's why a lot of the, the women in the, the military tend to marry fellow ser- service members. At least that's just been what I've found when I've discussed this, you know, with other fellow female service members. So back to the script, Shirley and Robert maintained a long distance marriage, traveling back and forth between Mississippi and South Carolina for a little bit. But from the beginning, there was an air of competition jealousy, unhappiness in the marriage. Robert was said to have been abusive both verbally and physically towards his new bride. He also had a problem with the drinky drink. Um, When he would get drunk, he would say a lot of nasty things about his wife, who is African-American and he is a Caucasian male. There were times in mixed company that he would make derogatory statements about his wife and her race. And, you know, Shirley was working towards getting promoted to major. And quite frankly, Robert's career was falling to shit. In July 1988, Shirley was given orders to Quantico, Virginia. Two months later in September, Robert was discharged from the Marine Corps under other than honorable conditions. While in Gulfport, Robert had been in trouble for unauthorized absences, unauthorized use of government telephones, and fraudulent claims against the federal government. Robert and Shirley were living together in the Marine officer's quarters, which is just as it sounds. It's base housing for married Marine officers at the time of his discharge. So immediately following his discharge, Robert became employed as a special education instructor at a local high school. Shortly thereafter, Robert began an affair with a coworker named Sandy Flint. So fed up with the fighting, abuse, and philandering, it wasn't long before the two separated. On February 28th, 1989, A few days after the two decided to part ways, Shirley moved out of the home she shared with Robert. Because the two were separated and Robert was no longer an active duty Marine, he had to immediately find a place to live off base while Shirley was able to move temporarily into the bachelor officer's quarters on base. When the couple split, obsessed and jealous, Bob plant recording devices in Shirley's car and under her bed. He was obsessed with the idea that his wife was having extramarital affairs. The recordings would later prove that she wasn't and also that he was batshit fucking crazy. The re- <laughs> she said that on the 28th of February, um, she, okay, sorry. So, On February 28th, she made plans with Robert to meet up over the weekend to clean out the home that they'd shared together at the MOQ so they could stand inspection and turn their keys over on March 6th. This is important. So 
if you live in base housing, it's basically like they've got homes that you are allowed to occupy with your spouse, but you have to maintain some of the guidelines and bylines, similarly to having like an HOA, except for it's on like a whole nother level because like they can enter your home at some, you know, if they need to for certain things. Um, when you're not there, you have to put in chits if there's things that you need repaired around the home. Anyways, so you're supposed to return the home in after a white glove inspection in the same condition that you received it in and um it's tedious you know hopefully you didn't put any holes in any of the walls or doors or anything like that you know normally you know you just have to do a deep thorough cleaning and that's one thing that you do learn how to do in the military is how to field day um so th that's a thing so they had to do this, then they had to pass the inspection before they could have this house basically removed from uh, Shirley's name, essentially. You know, like, she had to just deal with it. It's just the way of the military. I don't know how else to explain it. Anyways, on March 7th, or 2nd, Robert moved in with Sandy Flint in her home in Dale City that she shared with her father-in-law. On the same day, Robert purchased a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol. The following day, March 3rd, Shirley received the final version of her separation papers from Base Legal and put a deposit on an apartment off base in preparation for her life post-Robert. The two spoke briefly and agreed to meet at the home that they once shared together the following morning, afternoon-ish, um, so March 4th, as their inspection, again, like I said, was scheduled for Monday, March 6th. Shirley asked her sister, Doretha, who lived three hours away in Virginia Beach, to drive up for the weekend for moral support as she planned to do so. You know, and she did plan to do so, but at the last minute, Doretha's boss needed her to work, so she was unable to make the trip up to Quantico. Oddly, though, Doretha said that just before 9 a.m. on March 4th, she received a call from Bob identifying himself on the phone as Shirley's commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Hodges. He asked if she knew where Shirley was, but Doretha, you know, she immediately recognized Bob's voice saying, Bob, I know this is you. Why are you playing games? You should know where Shirley is. You're right there in Quantico with her. Shortly after 11 a.m., Sandy Flint said that Bob left her home to meet Shirley in Quantico. Rhonda McCumber, the Russell's adjacent neighbor, said that she saw Shirley arrive at the Russell home around noon. Shirley had made plans also to have lunch with a friend, Captain Patrice Gale, after her meeting with Bob at the MOQ. The two arranged to meet up at Shirley's room at the BOQ. At 1.20, when Patrice arrived at Shirley's room, she found that her friend wasn't there. When Patrice failed, you know, failed to find Shirley at the BOQ, she drove to the MOQ home that the Russells were supposed to be cleaning. When Patrice arrived, she was told by Bob that Shirley had decided 
to walk to the exchange for a can of paint. Bullshit. Quantico is 86 square miles in size. The exchange was approximately five miles away from the MOQ. It was 40 degrees and rainy. Off the rip, Bob's explanation as to the whereabouts of Shirley made no sense. Patrice would later say that she was surprised by Bob's answer because it was unlike Shirley to ever miss appointments or plans that she set with anyone. Following Patrice's departure, Chief Warrant Officer Kenneth Shilko invited Bob over to his home. The two men drank coffee and talked for over an hour before Bob departed. When questioned later, Kenneth said that during Bob's visit, he seemed distracted and preoccupied with the clock hanging on the Shilko wall. After his visit, Bob returned to the home he was sharing with Sandy, where he showered and then called his parents to inquire about the weather conditions in St. Clair, Pennsylvania. Excuse me. It was approximately 3 p.m. at the time that he made his phone call. Afterwards, at about 5 p.m., Bob, who owned an open bed pickup truck, asked Sandy if he could borrow her blue station wagon and drove from Quantico to his parents' home in Pennsylvania. Now, we know he was in Quantico, interestingly, because adjacent neighbor Rhonda McCumber stated that she saw Bob back the station wagon into the parking space near the storage shed at he and Shirley's former home briefly before he departed at about 5 p.m. Somewhere between 9.30 and 11 p.m., Bob called Shirley's sister again, asking about Shirley's whereabouts. Again, she told him he should know, but Bob told her he hadn't seen or heard from Shirley since she had left to go buy paint. Bob told the sister that he and Shirley had reconnected over the weekend, but the sister basically called bullshit and said that, you know, they both knew that her sister was finished with him. Oddly, Bob then told his sister-in-law that Shirley was at peace with herself. She hung up on Bob after that chilling statement. So Bob returns to Sandy's home on the morning of March 6th. Sandy stated that her car had been cleaned and detailed thoroughly from like top to bottom, inside and out. And Bob even hung an air freshener inside. In all the other times that Bob had borrowed her car, he'd never cleaned it before returning her keys to her. So that same morning, Bob casually asks Sandy's father-in-law, Mr. Robert Flint Sr., how to remove bloodstains from concrete, to which Mr. Flint, a former professional house painter, instructed Bob to clean the spot with muriatic acid. So it's Monday morning and Shirley hasn't reported to work, nor has she was she present for her inspection at the MOQ. Normally they would let like about 48 hours lapse before they would, you know, ring the alarm and be puzzled and start to wonder if there was some foul play at hand. Um, but they would absolutely consider her, uh, AWOL or absent without leave, UA, 
which is an unexcused absence in the Marine Corps. Um, all of those are the same thing. But she was so punctual and prompt and, you know, historically had never been late without giving a heads up that, you know, bells and whistles were immediately rang when her commanding officer, you know, didn't get a hold of her. So when her commanding officer did his walkthrough of the home, though, he made notice of the blood-like stain on the floor in the storage shed. A week later, Lieutenant Colonel Hodges noted that the blood stain now appeared to have been whitewashed. Bob would later admit to cleaning the stain with, you know, the muriatic acid. For days, an exhaustive search for Shirley was conducted. There was no activity on any of her credit cards or bank accounts. Friends and family hadn't heard from Shirley since the 4th of March, and Bob was literally the last person to, you know, be seen with her. When interviewed, Bob had initial, you know, Bob was initially cold and businesslike. When the question of possible depression and suicide came up, Bob posed a few odd hypothetical questions like, what if she wasn't dead when he arrived at the home but attempted to wrestle a gun from her and she killed herself? You know, weird shit like that. After the interview, evidence was being collected that pointed towards Bob, obviously. The most damning piece of circumstantial evidence being a floppy disk that was left with his personal effects at his desk in Gulfport, which were, you know, left in a box and put in storage after he was discharged. Like, literally the day after he got the boot, they cleared his desk, and they find a floppy disk. Now, let's talk about this floppy disk. This floppy disk contained what has been described in the past as a 26-step recipe for murder or how to commit and get away with the perfect murder of a wife, his wife, Shirley. When confronted with the damning evidence, Bob contended that the contents of the floppy disk were no more than the outline for a book he you know, intended to write. Federal law enforcement searched the area, you know, the areas of Quantico and Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, but their searches were futile. At one point, Robert's brother even recalled a phone conversation in February of 1989, where Bob had asked if his brother could obtain, you know, like, some dynamite for him, basically saying, like, he couldn't get his hands on any down there and he needed it. And, you know, his brother didn't put two and two together as to why he would possibly need dynamite, which he did not provide for him. But if you remember where Robert was from, with all of those abandoned uh, mines and shafts everywhere, it would suffice to say that he would probably want to do that so that the remains of his wife could not be found. So, on the morning of February 8th, 1991, the FBI arrested Bob while he was at work. One day earlier, a federal uh, grand jury in Alexandria, Virginia, had indicted him with the murder of his missing wife. 
He was transported to the Allentown U.S. East District Court, Eastern District Court. After that hearing, he was taken to a detention cell in Philadelphia to await extradition to Virginia for a formal arraignment. He was released into the custody of his parents in St. Clair after they posted his $50,000 bail. Now, without a body a murder and a murder weapon, the only thing that the prosecution had to work with was a motive. And, you know, the computer documents which Robert had constructed and dumbass saved on that floppy were the only piece that they had to work with. So, but since the grand jury testimony is not a matter of public record, the media had no idea until the, mur the murder trial that this key piece of evidence had been in possession of the FBI for nearly two years. Despite the case being built solely on circumstantial evidence, which may or may not have been obtained illegally, uh, I don't believe that it was because it was government property. The floppy disk, okay, so this is how this works. He worked on this floppy disk on a computer in his office at the Naval Station in Gulfport. That makes the computer that he worked on and that floppy disk government property. When he was discharged, he was no longer able to access that government property. Therefore, when it was given over as evidence, it was not illegally obtained. That's how that, that's how that chain of logic works. Okay. So, they're saying that Hold on a second, let me get back to the script. They're saying, in spite of that, there was being no direct evidence that Shirley had even been killed in the first place because investigators had found no hair or blood inside of Sandy's station wagon and the supposed murder weapon was never located, which they believed was a twenty-five caliber weapon similar to the one that he purchased a couple of days prior to her disappearance because Robert said that the 25 caliber was the perfect weapon where it left minimal blood splatter and evidence, you know, it made cleanup very easy. So Robert was convicted of the first degree murder. The verdict was super shocking wrote oh it was shocking and you know one newspaper reported that it stunned the courtroom into silence for the first time in american history quote a first degree murder conviction had been handed down in federal court despite no not having a body quote were baffled was all Finelli could say as authorities led his client out of the courthouse in handcuffs. The evidence which led the jury to its verdict hinged largely on testimony given by Robert's first wife, Pamela, who testified that she often went on walks with Robert through the woods during their marriage. And he quote said, he said, quote, there were big holes at the bottom at 
the, at the bottom of mine shafts. She said, quote, he told me that if he ever wanted to get rid of me, nobody would ever find me there. So Bob's own words would be the linchpin for his demise. Because this was a federal case, Bob has been incarcerated without the possibility of parole. He has appealed his case numerous times. Each appeal has been rejected. So what had happened is this. Robert Russell was a man who was a piece of shit. Let's be perfectly honest. Um, because he literally, I, okay. So I understand that I read in, I read in one article that he had lived with a little bit of what will the guys think when they find out that he was married to Shirley. First of all, you were fucking with her when you guys were stationed together in Beaufort and you had no problems with it. You liked her. She was a hard charging, motivated woman who, you know, had a good head on her shoulders and, you know, a great career ahead of her. He very well could have been a hard charger had he not been so gross with the things that he did okay so he marries her he abuses her he calls her names that i'm not gonna say you know that are derogatory based on the fact that he's a low high grade bigot i don't understand why you would be a bigot and yet you would marry someone who is not like you i hate people like that that's bullshit like, why do you do that? You know, you were jealous of her because, again, like I just said, she was a motivated woman who was moving on quickly in her career. And his was, you know, basically going to pot. His career was being flushed down the drain only because of his own doing. He did so much shit and it accumulated that finally the Marine Corps had to kick him out. And I mean, he could have been a content dependent had he been, you know, on the up and up while he was working as a special education instructor and kept it in his pants. That final, you know, set of betrayal and philandering with Miss Flint, I'm sure was the final nail in the coffin for... Surely. Also, the fact that, you know, the things that he was doing reflected poorly on her and her military career, you know, because, you know, you do take on that responsibility of the things that your dependent does. So there was a lot of bullshit going on, and she was very smart to want to get away from him and try to do it quickly, quietly, you know, low key, but he could not accept defeat and he'd obviously been planning on getting rid of her he probably wanted insurance who knows what his real reasoning behind constructing a recipe for murder so to speak uh, a so in-depth recipe if you will um step by step 
And then here we are all of these years later, and we still have yet to find her remains. Because he knew. So it would suffice it to say that, okay, these mines and things of that sort could potentially be considered killing fields as well. Um, I am super glad that, you know, the federal government had to take over and prosecute this and that he was found guilty and that he was put away because a person like him is a predator and where his first wife, Pam, may have been able to get away and Miss Sandy Flint was able to get away, Shirley Gibbs Russell did not. And where Shirley Gibbs Russell was a victim, had he continued to have his freedom and if he was found not guilty, there potentially could have been another. And frankly, this whole bullshit of Oh, well, this was the outline for a book, but a lot of the points that were used in this step-by-step -step methodology were found to be used and employed in the baffling disappearance of Shirley Gibbs Russell points to the fact that this was all motive and that you premeditated, you know, this murder of your wife and you thought about it for a while. You thought about it from Mississippi. You thought about it for quite some time. You thought about it before you got to Quantico, Virginia. And then when you got there, everything kind of imploded and she's, she, you know, she wasn't having it because she had a career to think about. She was young and she needed to move on with her life and move on with the career that she'd worked so hard to try to obtain the rank of major and, and go on from there. And he couldn't stand it. He was a two-bit captain who shouldn't have been anything more than a poolie. He didn't even deserve the rank that he had obtained. But here he was, living in hatred and animosity towards his wife, who was able to obtain the career that he let slip through his fingers. And then he took her out. And so skillfully... And, you know, oh, I can't even think of another word. But yeah, skillfully got rid of the body. Her family will never have peace. She will never have the funeral and recognition that she deserves. The family will never have a place to go and know that she lies there for the rest of their time and onward. He took that from her. He took that from them. And for that, he's a monster. He threatened his first wife with the same fate. He doesn't deserve freedom. He never deserves to see the light of day.
Whew. So that, ladies and gents, is what had happened. So now I'm going to hit you with a little bit of that beautiful outro music. And I will see you very soon with another lesser known true crime story. Again, I'm Kimberly. Thank you again for coming in and listening. Happy New Year. Welcome back, Carter. So glad you guys keep listening. I can't wait for what the year brings us. Rolling that outro music.